You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. Our focus today will be on verses 1 through 24. I'll be reading John 7, 1 through 31. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers had gone up to the feast. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us of all the times we pass unrighteous judgment. We judge by appearances, not simply our fellow man that has sinned enough, and it's a sin against you when we do so, as he's made in your image, and you are Lord of all. But forgive us, Father, when we judge you by appearances. Even as believers... And help us to make the right judgment of faith. Faith in who you've revealed yourself to be. And grant grace here for those who have not judged Christ to be your only begotten, the Lord and Savior of man. Grant them grace to hear your word, your testifying of yourself. And to make right judgment and bow before Christ, trusting him. In His name we ask this, Amen. It's been said by several that Matthew 7-1 has likely surpassed John 3-16 as the most well-known and quoted verse of Scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. The irony is that the verse is quoted in bad judgment. Jesus there was not speaking against judgment in total. He was warning against hypocritical judgment. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It doesn't say ignore altogether the speck in your brother's eye. Deal appropriately with your own sin first. And then you do judge, my brother has a speck in his eye. And it's not a kind thing to think, I'm not going to judge him. And leave that there but to deal with yourself properly and then address your brother. Further, Jesus follows that admonition with this judgment-necessitating commandment. This isn't ever quoted along with, Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You have to judge whether or not someone's a pig or a dog in order to obey that command. Jesus is not anti-judgment. Judgment is inevitable. Judgment is, is part of our creaturely life. Now there is a God-like stance and position of judgment that none of us should assume. We are not the judge of men. It is not our place to condemn people. God has pronounced the basis upon which condemnation and salvation will be had 
And we have a ministerial authority to proclaim that. But we shouldn't act as though we stand in that position as if we're on the throne. But there is a creaturely level of judgment that we must exercise. We must exercise it on a variety of levels every day. Try drinking milk from this point forward without making judgment beforehand. And I believe there will come a time whenever you will make judgment afterwards. And you will see the ridiculous of trying to live life without making judgment. It's the same thing with people. Try exercising no judgment with people beforehand and you will have a sour experience and you will want to spew them out afterwards. You'll make judgment somewhere along the line. Even those who say, judge not lest you be judged are making a judgment in the way they say that. Judgment's inevitable. In our text this morning, Jesus calls for the crowds and He calls for us along with them to make right judgment. Astonishingly, He calls for us to make right judgment about Him. Make right judgment about Jesus? Now, this isn't to say that you're the judge of Jesus. It's to say that in the courtroom of your soul, you just make judgment. You discern and you decide. Make the right judgment. If you judge rightly, then you understand this. You don't stand as one over Jesus to make judgment. You stand as one under Jesus, judged. That's what happens when you make right judgment. If you make a right judgment concerning Jesus, you realize He's the eternally begotten Son of God who, taking on flesh, became the Christ, the anointed of God, who lived perfectly, who died in the stead of sinners, who rose defeating death, who ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, and who will return to judge the living and the dead. In this passage, we see two kinds of wrong judgment about Jesus. We see the wrong judgment of His brothers in Galilee. We've seen the wrong judgment of the Jews in Jerusalem. Really, it breaks down more than that because once we get to Jerusalem, we see the leader's judgment and the people's judgment. And then we look at the people, we see two different kinds of judgment in general being made by them. Really, it comes down to this, though. You either make a wrong judgment concerning Jesus or you make a right judgment. And this is the most important decision any person ever makes in their life. And to consider the magnitude of the sin that's involved in many people just not making a decision, consider how much we fret, even as believers, after we've come to know Christ, how much we fret over such lesser decisions in our life. Lesser judgments. Should I wear this shirt or that that shirt? Where should I go to school? Should I purchase that car? Who should I marry? Should we move? Is that stock a good investment? Is this car worth the price? It's not that all those decisions are altogether insignificant, but... If you've made the wrong judgment concerning Christ, all those other things are vain, empty, and meaningless eternally. 
At the end, there's one question on the test. That if you get that one wrong, it doesn't matter what the answer is on everything else. It's all wrong. It's the same question that Jesus put to Peter, to the apostles, the twelve. Who do you say that I am? And so the call that Jesus is making in this text is, judge rightly concerning how you answer that question. This episode opens after this, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. This being the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. And the, that this, the feeding of the 5,000, happened, chapter 6 and verse 4. When the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So chapter 6, the Passover is at hand. Here, the feast of the booths is at hand. Verse 2. So some six months have transpired between the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee and now the feast of the booths being at hand and we're soon to be in Judea. Six months have elapsed. Now back up a little bit more and... In chapter 5, we had an unnamed feast, and then before that, we had this previous Passover that was mentioned. Just back up and let's do this instead. Chapter 6, you have the Passover that's mentioned there. We're going to soon encounter the next Passover, chapter uh, 12. You've got one year that elapses there, and it's what most scholars will refer to as Jesus' Galilean ministry, his, his exclusive or intensive Galilean ministry. And we've got this interruption right in the middle of it at the Feast of Booths. The Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all focus intensely on this Galilean ministry. That's where most of their material about Jesus and His works and His teaching all take place in that one year time frame. So John is giving us a window into a lot of what's happened before that one year Galilean ministry. And with that, he's told us a reason why Jesus is focusing so intensely on Galilee for this year prior to His journey to the south, to Jerusalem where He will be crucified. Why is Jesus focusing so intently? On Galilee? Because the Jews want to kill him. Now it's true, we saw a decisive turn happen with the feeding of the 5,000. Many have departed, many have left him. The crowds that are following him, uh, many turn back at that point. That's true. But it's the Jews who have this position of authority that's threatened, and it's they who are seeking to kill him. The Jews, no doubt, refers at in this instance, and many throughout John, to the Jewish leaders. Same reference point as in 119. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's not as if the Jews got together some democratic vote, let's send some priests and Levites there. It's the authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Send these men to question John. John 5.18, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that reference takes us back to chapter 5, that previous unidentified feast, where Jesus healed a man who had been invalid for 38 years. 
And this also reminds us of the larger context, chapters 5 through 10, what we call the festival cycle, where we have four feasts, four signs, and in each of them, the intensity of their antagonism towards Jesus is heightened greatly. And so it is, we're told, verse 1, that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The word that you have is would. He would not go about in Judea. Conveys the idea of desire, intent, purpose. New American Standard has, he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He's making a decision here. He doesn't want to go there because they're seeking to kill him. But isn't that the point? Didn't Jesus come to die? Yes, that's the point, but this isn't the time. So he's not going to Judea openly yet. And so his brothers pop on the scene, verse 3. Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. His brothers, who are they? These are his half-brothers according to the flesh. Children of Mary and Joseph. We saw that Jesus moves them along with his mother to Capernaum in chapter 2 and verse 12. Since that move, his ministry has grown exponentially in popularity and in disfavor as well. And they've been witness to that. And since that time, we see they've grown, well, we'll see their attitude towards it. In Matthew 13, 55, the people of Nazareth named them as James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude as you know him, to be distinguished from Judas the betrayer, Jude the brother. And these are those who are referred to, here's where the you get some inkling of the turn that happens. Mark 3.21, they're involved in this. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And so these very brothers that at one point wanted to go, we need to intervene, are now coming to him, And they implored Jesus, go up that your disciples may see your works. Back up six months, feeding of the 5,000. Many disciples have defected because they're asking for a sign and Jesus isn't giving them more signs. And they say, go to Jerusalem. Go to the big city during the festival and do a sign that they may see it, that your disciples may see. See it. Give them what they're asking for. They're making a veiled accusation that Jesus wants to be known. No one who wants to be known does these things in secret. Go put on a show. Show yourself. They accuse him of doing the very thing he speaks against in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. In a way... The interaction here reminds you of that other brother who laid down his life for the sake of the brothers who persecuted him. Reminds you of the relation of Joseph and his brothers. Here comes this dreamer. Let's see what will become of his dreams. 
Go, put on a show. While the crowds are enthusiastically encouraging Jesus to perform a sign, his brothers are provoking him to do so with ridicule. And in all of this, you hear the serpent's hiss. Go seize the crown minus the cross. But whether, whether it be Peter's protest or the crowd's enthusiasm or the provocation of Jesus' brothers or the enticement of Satan... All such seeking to have a crowned Jesus without a cross are demonic. And so why do his brothers provoke him so? Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's the not even of that verse that's startling. Not even his brothers. It testifies to the truth Jesus just spoke of in chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus went on to say to his disciples, those who were leaving him, grumbling at his words, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all, even if that flesh is related to Jesus. Dear souls, if it does the brothers of Jesus no good to be related to Jesus, it does you no good to be the child of a believer. If being a brother of Jesus won't save your soul, Being a child of a believer will not save your soul. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit who gives gives life. And the reply that Jesus gives his brothers here is that his time has not yet come, verses 6 through 9. And there's two ways that this can be taken. His time has not yet come could could be thought of Primarily in reference to the feast. My time to go to the feast has not yet come. Or it could be thought of in relation to their provocation, show yourself. Show yourself. And he says, my time has not yet come. And each way seems to make sense of something in the text. And each way of understanding it comes with its own problems. So first, let's take Jesus's, his time has not yet come to refer to his hour for those two things to be synonymous. We've already seen Jesus refer to his hour whenever his mother approaches him at the wedding feast and says they've run out of wine. He responds, my hour has not yet come. Now Jesus does then turn the water into wine but he doesn't do so openly. He does so in such a way that only the disciples and the servants who help and assist with the water are in the know. He doesn't declare himself and manifest himself at this point. In this chapter, we will soon read, 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 30. And this is the hour that will come to the fore more and more as we advance in John. It's the hour of his greatest humiliation and glorification with his death and resurrection. Jesus says, my time has not yet fully come, verse 8. It could be rendered as the legacy standard has it. My time has not yet been fulfilled. There's a mission, and it hasn't come to that point of ripening and fulfillment. He will show Himself at a future feast. And when He shows Himself, though there will be great Acclaim as he comes into the city. Very soon they will earnestly seek him and execute him as Jesus lays down his life as a seed to be planted in the ground to burst forth three days later with new life. The greatest strength of this interpretation is that it makes sense of this big theme throughout John my hour, the hour. It makes sense of what Jesus says in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The problem with his interpretation is that it appears, uh, it makes it appear as though Jesus lied or deceived his brothers. The way you deal with that is that Jesus didn't go up as they are inciting him to go up. Go up to the feast openly. Go up, show yourself. Go up manifesting who you are, seizing the kingdom. That's what they're wanting him to do. Don't act secretly. Act openly. The second way of understanding Jesus' words is brought out by the marginal reading of verse 8 that you have as a footnote in the ESV. You go up to the feast, I am not, the marginal reading is just one word, I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus does what His Father does. Chapter 5, verse 19 and 30, what He sees His Father doing, He does. His time to depart is not Determined by the provocation of his brothers, but by the encourage, by the will of his father. The strength of this interpretation is that it easily eradicates any idea of Jesus deceiving, lying to his brothers. The weakness is that it fails to make sense of verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Is this being the reason why he's not going up at this time until his time is fulfilled? It doesn't deal with the implications of verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. That the way he was not doing what his brothers wanted him to do was by going privately, not publicly. So how do we deal with this? I think Jesus' answer is something of a double entendre. It's both. I'm not going up openly as you're provoking me. I'm going up later privately because my time has not yet come. 
we look at this, I think it's rare that you find a soul who hasn't found this same sentiment, the same provocation rising up in their own soul. Show yourself. I'm not talking about the believer's earnest longing and desire. Come, Lord Jesus. Or the longing, Father, revive your people. Send your spirit. Open our eyes to see Christ. Not that kind of show yourself. But the show yourself of a a raised fist of the sufferer. Show yourself. Or the ridicule of the unbeliever. If you're real, show yourself. And what distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous expression of show yourself is faith. What marks the brother's unrighteousness in this is the if. If you do these things, show yourself. If, show yourself if you're good. Show yourself if you exist. And if that's you, total unbelief. If it's a believer, I think you just recognize, I need to repent of that unrighteous kind of attitude. But if you're an unbeliever and you see that expression in your heart, show yourself. Recognize that your provocation is more ghastly, appalling, and serious than the disciples. Than, excuse me, than the Jew, these, his brothers, than Jesus' brothers. It's more appalling, it's more dangerous because Jesus' hour came and He said, this is the sign that is given. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. His hour came, He manifested Himself. And if you say, show yourself, the only hour left is the hour of His return when He will manifest Himself in glory and judgment. 2 Thessalonians speaks of that day saying that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. His time to show Himself has not yet come and that is His grace and mercy to you that He has not shown Himself to you. And yet, He is showing Himself to you in the proclaiming of that first hour of His advent when He came and was lifted up on the cross and rose again from the grave. Beware when His time to show Himself does come again because on that day you will not be able to hide yourself. Sinner, know that Jesus has shown Himself in the sign of signs, His crucifixion and resurrection. While Jesus' brothers did not believe at this time, after His ascension, things 
obviously had changed. We read in Acts 1.14, All these, it refers to the remaining 11 apostles minus Judas, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What made the difference? 1 Corinthians 15 perhaps gives us some insight. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He also appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. James, the brother of our Lord, saw the one he provoked and said, Show yourself! And after his resurrection, he showed himself to James. And the most critical seeing that James did with that day was not the seeing with his eyes, but the seeing with the heart of faith. And he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Sinner, Jesus has shown himself. He's showing himself to you. You may not think it, uh, if God is indeed showing Himself by His Spirit, you will know He's showing Himself to you just as convincingly as He did to James on that day. By His Word, testifying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Crucified for sinners, risen defeating death. Believe in Him and you will be saved. Trust, trust Him and you can rejoice when He shows Himself again. Trust in His first showing and you can rejoice at His second showing. Sometime after this interaction, Jesus goes up to the feast privately. Verse 10. Large caravan of Galilean celebrants has already made its way to Jerusalem. Jesus leaves privately. His conspicuous absence is noted. Verses 11 through 13. The Jews... The leaders are looking for him. Where is he? The crowds are muttering about him. Some of them saying he's a good man. Others, uh, he's a deceiver. And the word muttering is the same word that you had translated. Well, it's derivative. It's related word of the word you had as grumbling in chapter 6. They're grumbling about him. When they say he's a good man, they're still grumbling because he's not simply a good man. And when they say he's a deceiver, they mean nothing less than that they side with the leaders. He should die. Per Deuteronomy 13, 6-10, anyone who would lead the people of God astray is to be stoned. And they mutter, verse 13, they, they whisper this. That's with the idea of muttering. Because Jesus' talk is being policed, verse 13. For fear of the Jews. There you see that that is a reference to the leaders. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. When you look at the synoptic gospels, again that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see there the leaders' fear of the people. While in John, the focus is the people's fear of the leaders. And if you don't understand how those two things can go together, you are just naive and elementary in your understanding of the politics of this world. That is the dance of the politics of this world. Leaders fearing the people and people fearing the leaders. 
And what this indicates in our text that's important is that the people are alert to the leader's stance towards Jesus. Their fear, they're afraid of the repercussions that may occur. Will we be interrogated the way we saw the invalid man who was healed interrogated for Jesus' talk? About the middle of the feast, we find Jesus teaching in the temple, verse 14. He's teaching, no sign. The previous interactions have all arisen out of a sign. This one starts with teaching. This is part of Jesus' not going up openly, doing something that his disciples may see, and seizing the kingdom. But we find him teaching. And the Jews, verse 15, marvel at his teaching. In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, at the conclusion of that sermon, we find the crowds astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority and not like the scribes. Here, we don't have the people marveling at Jesus' authority in his teaching. We have the leaders marveling at the source of his teaching. He's not accredited. He didn't go to one of our schools. He hasn't benefited from our tutelage. How does he have this knowledge of the Scriptures? He doesn't have our stamp of approval. And the word learning that you, you have is more literally expressed in the New King James. How does this man know letters, having never studied? And what they mean is not, how can he read and write? How does he know his ABCs? How does he know letters? The same word that's translated letters there, is translated writings, referring to the writings of Moses in chapter 5 and verse 47. How does this man know the letters? How does he know the Scriptures, having never studied? Meaning, been to one of our schools, under one of us, he's not approved. Jesus explains something of his superior understanding in the private, in the pers- previous encounter with them in chapter 5, verse 39, when he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The astonishing thing is not how Jesus could know the scriptures. The astonishing thing is how they could know the scriptures and not know Jesus is the Christ. In answer to their question, he tells them his teaching is not his own, verse 16. It is his, it is the one, it is of the one who sent him. So just as the Father works and Jesus works, so the Father speaks and Jesus speaks. After hearing healing the invalid man, Jesus told them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This holds true not only for Jesus' works, but for His words. So Jesus flips the challenge. Verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If one seeks to do God's will, they recognize Jesus' Words having their origin in God. They've challenged his teaching. He challenges their ability to learn. 
If Jesus spoke on his own authority, he'd be seeking his own glory. This is contrary to everything we've seen in Jesus, especially in the last episode. The crowds were enthusiastic. They were ready to make him king. He dismisses the crowds. They come to him again. And he puts the truth of his identity before them again and again in such a way that they turn away from him. When he attracts improper attention and enthusiasm, he curbs it again and again. As the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he is true. In him there is no falsehood. In him there is no, it could be translated, unrighteousness. All this has been answering their question, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? And the answer is, he's one sent by God. His authority is not derived from man, it is from heaven. And this speaks volumes concerning their failure to grasp his teaching. Their will is not God's will. Their work is not God's work. The work is to believe in the one whom he has sent, chapter 6 and verse 29. But what is, that's, that's what the work of God is, to believe in the one whom he has sent. What is their will? They want to kill him. Jesus drawing attention to this. They reply, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And note that it's the crowd who so interjects, verse 19. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. It's the crowd. Who's seeking to kill you? Remember, we were just told they were muttering about Jesus because they feared the leaders. They understand someone's out for Jesus. They bear witness against themselves in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not the man, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? But what you're seeing here is this variety of opinions and judgments concerning Jesus. This whole chapter, that's what it is. It's made up all these varieties of judgments, most of them wrong, concerning Jesus. Jesus is bringing all of this back to his previous visit. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. That's what he was saying whenever, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? It's all in light of that previous visit in chapter 5, where we read, 518, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They marveled at that work. Even though they understand as Jews that the celebration of the Sabbath is not violated by obedience to God's command concerning circumcision. Male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. If that eighth day happens to fall on the Sabbath, you don't break the Sabbath by circumcising the child on that day. You keep the law. You don't break the law. Jesus did not just ceremonially treat a part of this man's body. He made his whole body whole. 
And for this they seek to kill Him. Yes, they may be enthusiastic at times. But when Jesus presses the truth of who He is upon them, the very crowds that at one time will hail Him, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, will at the leader's instigation come to cry, crucify Him. And so Jesus presses them to make right judgment. Not to judge by appearances, but to make right judgment. Ultimately, there are only two judgments that are made concerning Jesus. There are those who want Jesus dead, and there are those who rejoice that Jesus died and rose again. That's it. You make one of those two judgments concerning Jesus. You may think, I don't, I don't want to kill Jesus. I don't find any kind of animosity towards Jesus in this way. I don't want to crucify Him. You come home to your spouse. And she feels distant. She asks, do you love me? And you begin to say all the things you love about her, and none of them are true about her. Not her hair color, not her eyes, not the things she's liked, not the things she's interested in. She doesn't feel loved by your expression of love, because what you say you love is not her. Loving that false her is hating the true her. Many people, oh, I love Jesus. But the Jesus they love is a figment of their own imagination. And just like the crowds we see here, the crowds that came to Him after the feeding of the 5,000, as Jesus presses the truth of who He is upon them again and again, their disapproval becomes plain. Sinful man wants Jesus to not exist. That's what he said. If you don't agree with that, you don't like Jesus because Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. If you say, I love Jesus, but don't acknowledge that you left to yourself hate Jesus, you hate Jesus. So how do we make right judgment about Jesus? First, we must not judge by appearances. Judging by appearances will lead to all kinds of wrong conclusions about Jesus. It led his brothers to provoke him. It leads these Jews to seek to kill him. It leads some in the crowd to say he's a good man to revise him. It leads others to say he's a deceiver. The remainder of this chapter is comprised of all kinds of wrong judgments about Jesus, judgments made by appearances. In the next section, we read that the crowd says, we know where this man comes from. They are judging by appearances. They think they know where he comes from. They know something of where he came from. They don't know the depth of it. If you're to judge rightly, you cannot cannot trust your own perception. You can't judge by appearances. We are... Short-sighted. We're myopic. We easily behold our own image in a mirror, but even that, we think it looks really good. 
we can't even see our own reflection. As creatures, our sight is limited. As sinful creatures, our sight then is further blurred and hazy. Can you see around the bend of the horizon? Can you see the warping of space by mass? Can you see the coding of your DNA? Can you see the spinning of electrons? Can you see the trajectory of creation? The story of the cosmos as it was written and is unfolding? Can you fathom the eternity which preceded us? We, little creatures who cannot judge the earth over which we were given a stewardship, presume to have the perception to judge the God of heaven? You cannot judge by appearances, by your perception. So how do we judge? Recall all the testimony and witness language that we've seen throughout John. Jesus spoke extensively of this witness to the Jews whenever he was last in Jerusalem. Chapter 5, verses 30 through 37. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Pause. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Judge not according to appearances. You need an authoritative witness by which to judge. That's how Jesus judged. You think you're greater than Jesus? You think you can just by your own perception, your own analysis, what if things appear to you make this kind of judgment? He goes on. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. How do we judge with right judgment? Well, how did Jesus judge? As I hear, I judge. Listen to the authoritative testimony of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit concerning who Jesus is. He sees all. He knows all. He is the authority. The greatest judgment you will ever make should be based upon the greatest witness. What does God say of Himself? Here's the marvel of his revelation. Right judgment means recognizing not only 
Do you stand under God's judgment? But that God in His Son bore that judgment in the stead of sinners. Making right judgment about God, receiving His revelation, means not only understanding the condemnation that we have as sinners, but the grace offered to us in the Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Judge wrongly and you will be judged truly as to who you are. Judge truly as to who Christ is and you'll never be judged because judgment's been for you, been born for you because you've come to know that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, the Christ who lived to be our righteousness, who died for our sins, who rose defeating death, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who sent His Spirit to make men new, and who will return again to judge the living and the dead. This is who He is. This is the testimony of Scripture. Judge rightly. Don't judge according to your own perception. Judge according to the witness and testimony of the triune God and you will be saved. Let's pray. Holy Father, the flesh profits nothing. And so we plead to you that your spirit takes this truth to the soul of any here who do not know you. And bears witness and testimony and power by your spirit and your word that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have life in his name. And Father, we pray that your spirit would go with us as we depart this place and we tell others of Christ. That they would not judge by appearances, but that you would give them sight, the sight of faith to believe your testimony. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.